From the epicenter of Susan's Workshop, located at the North Pole of Columbia Street, welcome to our Nipty Practice Tips Stocking Stuffer Edition for 2016. Let's unwrap your first tip. As held by the Court of Appeals in People v. Huertas in 1990, and again in People v. Smith in 2013, introducing as direct evidence the description of the perpetrator that the victim or witness gave to the police is proper at trial. This includes testimony by either or both the eyewitness and or the police officer. This is not bolstering, nor is this hearsay. Rather, it is evidence that assists the jury in evaluating the witness's opportunity to observe at the time of the crime and the reliability of his or her memory at the time of the corporeal identification both important aspects of the critical issue of identification in any identification case. Thus, in Huertas, description testimony was properly admitted for the non-hearsay purpose, and that being so, the defendant's contention that it was inadmissible as a prior consistent statement was irrelevant. The Smith Court wrote some 13 years later, We held in People v. Huertas, that a crime victim could testify to her own description of her attacker, given to the police shortly after the crime. We now hold that a police officer's testimony to a victim's description, where it does not tend to mislead the jury, may also be admissible under the Huertas rule. Okay, let's open up our next stocking stuff. There we go. Now let's see what we've got here. Oh, yes. Defendant's statement to a law enforcement officer is not properly introduced by the defense for its truth unless there is a proper hearsay exception. So you should be prepared to make a motion in limine to prevent the defense from attempting to introduce any such evidence. So says the Court of Appeals in People v. Sastry back in 1980. The defense cannot introduce defendant's self-serving hearsay statement made to the police unless it's an excited utterance or it qualifies pursuant to some other hearsay exception. A defendant's statement to police is not admissible at trial simply because it was made by the defendant. To put it another way, there is no such thing as the defendant's statement hearsay exception. Defense can be precluded from mentioning this in their opening or during voir dire by your making a motion in limine before the trial starts. So, let's see our next stuffer. Well, that was easy. Our next stuffer says, forcing a defendant into court at trial for a witness to make an in-court identification of the defendant is proper, even if the defendant has chosen not to be present for the trial. This was a holding by the Court of Appeals all the way back in 1955, People v. Winship. While a defendant has the right to absent him or herself from the trial, if she or he is available, you have the right to force him or her into the court for a possible in-court identification by a witness in the presence of the jury or the fact finder of the court. 
The defense cannot prevent this by offering to simply stipulate that the witness would have made an identification of the defendant. However, if you choose not to have the court compel the defendant's presence, you are permitted to have the witness identify a photograph of the defendant. Remember, however, the defendant cannot be forced into the courtroom for a suppression hearing dealing with identification. Also see People v. Scarola from the Court of Appeals, decided in 1988. Okay, let's see what we've got here. Whoa, this looks like a little bit of regifting. Negative identification evidence is admissible at trial. So held the Court of Appeals in People v. Wilder, 1999. When a witness views other people or photos of people similar in appearance to the defendant and does not make an identification, this negative identification is evidence you should be able to introduce at trial. As a general proposition, negative identification evidence will be relevant in certain circumstances, notably when the reliability of an eyewitness identification is at issue. Negative identification evidence can tend to prove that the eyewitness demonstrated that he was able to distinguish the particular features of the perpetrator. Please also see People v. Benton, a Fourth Department case dealing with this from 2013. Oh, a lump of coal. My friends, we've had another reversal for a court's error in charging justification to the jury. When the judge charges the jury on the rules of justification, it must instruct the jury that if it acquits the defendant on the most serious charge to which justification applies, due to their finding of justification, the jury is not permitted to consider any of the other lesser charges to which justification applies. A failure to charge in this fashion will result and has resulted in reversible error. Therefore, in cases like People v. Velez and this current case of People v. Dellen, convictions have been reversed due to the court's error in correctly charging justification. Please be sure to read these cases and be prepared to interrupt the judge if such an incorrect charge is being given. Well, it looks like we're coming down to our last stocking stuffer. Ah, and this is a good one. Past recollection recorded. Admissible at trial when a witness cannot remember a fact at the trial. And this includes the grand jury testimony of that witness. A memorandum made of a fact known or an event observed in the past of which the witness lacks sufficient present recollection may be received in evidence as a supplement of the witness's oral testimony. So wrote the Court of Appeals in People v. Taylor in 1992. Such a document is known as past recollection recorded. The requirements for admission generally are 1. The witness observed the matter recorded. 2. The recollection was fairly fresh when recorded or adapted. 3. The witness can presently testify that the record correctly presented his or her knowledge and recollection when made. 4. The witness lacks sufficient present recollection of the recorded event. And, obviously, five, the person who made the observation testifies at trial. Now, this is not independent evidence of the facts contained therein, but is supplementary to the testimony of the witness. The witness's testimony and the writing's content are to be taken together and treated in combination, as if the witness had testified to the contents of the writing based on present knowledge. 
We hope you enjoyed today's edition of the NIPTI Practice Tips for the authority and case law to support the positions presented here today. Please be sure to read the NIPTI Practice Tip, Stocking Stuffers for 2016. On behalf of my crack producer, Jonathan Marconi, Crespino, and myself, we want to wish you all a wonderful holiday season and stay ready, my friends. Where